everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Let's hope this works. Uh, East and West in the first millennium. So one of the things to note about the schism between the Orthodox churches and, and Rome um, is it's not something, it's called 1054. If you, I gave that, that title, by the way, to my lecture, 1054 and all that. Um, 1054 is usually given as the date. Well, this is the break between the East and the West. Most scholars would tell you there really wasn't a firm break in 1054. There's a, I want to explain why it got that reputation. Uh, but also that this, this um, schism kind of took place in slow motion. It didn't happen all at once. It's over a period of centuries where some of the Orthodox churches, the Rome, kind of just drifted apart, developed in different ways, and became uh, separated from one another. So... Um, and so, first thing I want to talk about, uh, well, maybe this is not, how did I get, oh, this is weird, I have to put all this stuff in there, no, yep, I'm going to back, sorry. Um, one of the things, uh, that, um, we need to talk about when we talk about this schism is, first of all, what's schism? Uh, Aidan Nichols, who's a very good, um, um, Dominican theologian, Define schism as orthodox dissent. Of the words, you can be in schism with someone without necessarily being a, a heretic, without embracing things that are false. Um, although he notes that um, uh, schism, if it uh, lasts long enough, can become heretical. So there is some relationship between those two things. However, if you know anything about the modern Catholic Church, at least since Vatican II, um, there was a general consensus that the schism that exists between the Orthodox and um, Catholic Church uh, is is what they call partial schism. That is to say, we share a lot of things in common. Uh, apostolic succession, um, real presence of Eucharist, those sorts of things. There's a lot of basic agreement there, and the, that the differences are fairly, they're not minor, uh, but they are few, much fewer than you would have with uh, any sort of Protestant body. Um, and so, when we're talking about schism, it is something like this, because as you're going to see, what a schism is in history is not always that clear, <laughs> for reasons that will come apparent when I, when I get to this. Second thing uh, to mention is that in this story, overall, the division of the Roman Empire as it existed in late antiquity, before it sort of collapsed in the West, is really crucial to the story, um, mainly because it was kind of the norm uh, in the Roman Empire and in the Eastern Byzantine Empire that structures of church and state kind of went together, uh, and that's going to mark out differences. Uh, well, first of all, there's going to be, I think I mentioned this in some of my last lectures, that Literally, the uh, civil administration, the structures of the civil administration of the Roman Empire actually get into the church. Things like dioceses, um, um, eparchies, metropolitans, those are terms that come from the civil divisions of the old Roman Empire. Um, and in fact, both um, ideas of church authority, which are different, obviously, in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox churches, um, probably have some influence from, um, from the empire and its structure. They both, by the way, have perfectly... Uh, straightforward theological claims to make as well. But um, one other major difference in terms of the empire is that in the East, um, and this will make a difference for a very good reason, uh, is that uh, when the um, empire collapses in the West, you cease to have, especially after the 6th century, any type of imperial administration in the West. And why that's important is you don't have a, a civilian government. <laughs> it collapses, and the West become, becomes run basically by warlords. We'll call them kings. Um, but the early kings in the Middle Ages in the West, they make their, they make their living um, through warfare. In the East, it's much different. You have an emperor with an entire working bureaucracy and lots of money to run it. You have no, and there's neither resources nor the 
the manpower for that in the West. And uh, what makes a difference, by the way, is that in the eastern path of the empire, what we'll call the Byzantine Empire, you're going to have a literate class of laymen, um, you need that to run an empire, by the way, uh, who are also theologically literate. They're trained in theology. Nothing like this will exist until, in the West until the 15th century. This means the clergy is almost, has a monopoly of uh, theological discourse in the West. So that'll be very different. It'll also lead to differences in the way that um, theologians actually do theology, and which I don't have time to get into here, in East and West. Differences of method, slight differences, but they're, they're noticeable. Oh, the biggest problem that divides both East and West as you come out of the late antiquity and the late parts of the Roman Empire is, of course, language. Um, in the West, uh, from the early period, I want to say from the second or third century, um, the, uh, um, the liturgy in, uh, in the West is you know, in Latin. Uh, it was, by the way, originally in Greek because most of the uh, early Christians in uh, Rome were Jewish, uh, excuse me, Greek-speaking Jews from the Middle East. But eventually it became the language of the people, which was Latin. And in the eastern part, and we're talking about, I should be clarified here when I say Greek, we're talking about the Church of Constantinople when I say East and West. I mentioned this in passing, there are a lot of other churches in the ancient world, big ones that still exist that have nothing to do, not nothing to do, but are different, very separate from Constantinople who are quote-unquote Eastern. So we're mostly talking about the Church of Constantinople and those are uh, other Eastern churches that are in communion with it. Uh, but it's of course defined by Greek. Uh, and they're going to develop fairly different cultures uh, within the church itself. Um, there's going to be, um, you know, just for example, differences of theology. Again, as you've taken my lectures this semester, we talked about the Arian controversy, stuff like that. Most of the great doctrinal controversies in the early church are decided in the East, therefore in Greek. Um, as you remember from those lectures, you have lots of differences of language between Latin and Greek. Terms like hypostasis uh, don't really have a ready translation into Latin. Um, the same will be true, by the way, for Greek, because there will be terms, for example, like infallibilitas uh, and uh, vicarious, um, which are, of course, important for papal claims to authority, which have no real equivalence in Greek going forward. Uh, and this will get into some of the major um, theological disputes um, between Constantinople and Rome, um, particularly over the... Uh, uh, well, for example, two doctrines, um, purgatory, right? Uh, this comes out of the West in which um, the term originally in the New Testament is metanoia. It means something like repentance, right? You repent, you turn away from sin. This becomes penitentia in Latin. And that's a term, by the way, that has etymological roots of, uh, related to the word punishment, right? Uh, and so, of course, the idea that you need to, you know, work off your sort of uh, sins by, you know, overdoing, you know, penance and stuff like this in a physical way. Again, slight different interpretation uh, in the West, and this will probably be a cause of, uh, of uh, division. Uh, the same thing goes with the, with the, uh, the Greek term aiti. I think I'm pronouncing this the right way. Uh, it's a term that means something like first principle. The Latin translation, which is not exact, is causa, cause. Uh, why do I mention that? Because you get, this is going to get into discussions of um, uh, theological disputes like the filioque clause. Don't worry, I'll repeat that 9,000 times in this lecture. It's really important. Um, over, you know, uh, the whole idea of the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father, uh, which is the way the original creed says it, or filioque clause, what that is, in the creed that we recite in the West. Um, we recite every Sunday, of course, the, I believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's what the filioque means in Latin, and the Son. And uh, as we're going to see, 
this this sounded heretical to Greeks because it looks sounds like you have well you have two gods right two first causes you know God is a first cause right so things like this complicate the story and the last thing to mention here I say a complicated story that is because this is really bizarrely complicated <laughs> and I'll put it I'll put it I'll try to put this in in as simple terms as I can because um, sometimes you'll hear this claim when people are talking about ecumenical discussions about the you know Orthodox churches and the the Catholic Church, that um, um, the split was caused by cultural changes, right? I and mean, really, you have this as an idea that's out there. They don't have any really real dogmatic differences. It's just culture. And I'm here to tell you I don't agree with that. Uh, I think what happens is you do have cultural developments, which they're not aware of, by the way. Uh, in the ancient world, it's one thing to keep in mind. Nobody in here we're talking about here understands history in the way modern people do, right? It's this constantly developing change. They don't understand it that way. Uh, all they understand is the apostle handed on the faith and that somebody somewhere is getting it wrong and usually the people who are, you know, for, vice versa, right? Um, and so they don't understand things like they have no notion of what we call the development of doctrine. So their only sort of frame of reference for this if somebody's like, oh, this is different from what we understand, they must be, must be heretics, right? Or schismatics. Um, and what happens here basically is that a schism becomes radical. That's what, I, that's what I'm basically saying. Is these divergences of practice become schismatic over time. Uh, and again, you'll see one of the reasons we t uh, focused on 1054 because that's really the beginning of people coming to the realization that they really do and they have some serious differences. Um, but it is a complicated and not very simple story. Let's see if we can do that. Oh, good, good, good. So, a few more words about Rome and Constantinople. Uh, one of the things to understand about both of them is that they both um, um, they both have authority coming out of the ancient world. But in terms of um, the so-called apostolic sees, originally there were uh, three that were by tradition. This is before you know Nicaea, basically the first council of Nicaea. There were three great um, bishoprics or sees: uh, those of Rome, Antioch, and Alexandria. And um, Mainly because they're all associated with Peter, right? He's supposed to have gone to Alexandria, Antioch, he dies, and he's martyred in Rome. Um, at the Council of Nicaea uh, in 381, uh, special honor was also accorded to Jerusalem um, because of its history uh, within the church and before the church, obviously. Uh, it's only later in 381 at the first Council, uh, uh, Council of Constantinople, which you heard about last time if you came, um, that the See of Constantinople, which was, of course, there was no See of Constantinople. The city was only founded in 324. Uh, it was uh, granted by the uh, first Council, uh, Council of Constantinople, uh, granted a primacy of honor second only to, quote-unquote, old Rome. And again, this was done because this was now the seat of the empire in Constantinople. Um, the bishops of Rome never really accepted this. By the way, they never really acknowledged it. Um, they didn't really agree with this. Uh, but it becomes one of the reasons why Constantinople takes on, uh, takes on a, a great role within the church. A century later, of course, you have the fall of the Western Empire. And again, this will be very important for, again, the growing divisions over time between East and West. I should mention, by the way, up until the 6th century, the elites in both East and Western Roman Empire, both, most of them both were bilingual, they spoke speak Greek and Latin. So there was a shared Greco-Roman, literal Greco-Roman civilization, which they had in common. It's going to sort of grow apart over time. This is one of the big events that uh, makes that happen. And I should mention, by the way, when I say, you know, Western Empire, even after it falls, by the way, popes were 
specifically still subjects of the uh, Byzantine emperors, the East Roman emperors. They would literally make obeisance to emperors when they be, when they were elected, uh, when they being popes. They would date their reigns from the reigns of um, the Byzantine emperors. So they were still very much subject to their authority um, before um, hearing we're talking about here. The first real anything like a schism between uh, Constantinople and Rome takes place in the fifth century, um, when in the course of um, um, the course of again many debates over the nature uh, nature of Christ's divinity, uh, Pope Felix the Felix the Third in four eighty four um, excommunicates the Patriarch of Constantinople. His name was Acacius, hence the Acacian schism. Um, because Acacius issued a document which rejected the Council of Chalcedon's teaching on the two natures of Christ. I haven't done that, that lecture yet, but the Council of Chalcedon, not to give it away, um, declared that Christ had two natures, divine and human. And um, Acacius rejected this. In response, Acacius responded by removing uh, the name of Pope Felix from the diptychs in the, uh, in the liturgy in Constantinople. The diptychs are this long story. It's the sort of book where you um, record the names of bishops that you commemorate. And so to take the person's name out is to essentially to excommunicate them. That's essentially, it's not quite the same thing, uh, but it means you're no longer in communion. So that's, how you, um, that's how you indicate that in the Eastern churches. The schism will last, outlast both of those people until about uh, 519, when a compromise for, for me allowed for um, the, the schism to be overcome by the Emperor Justin I. So you already begin to have, because both of these, um, both of these sees begin to sort of make claims for authority in the church. Um, you can see them uh, growing in the 6th century. You also have in the 6th sixth, uh, sixth century the, um, an idea take hold, which is very powerful to this day among the Orthodox. This is the idea of the Pentarchy. <clears throat> this is the idea that those five bishoprics, those five sees I just mentioned, Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Constantinople, are sort of co-equal. Uh, and that the government of the church is essentially the emperor along with these sort of five you know, apostolic sees, so-called. Uh, so the idea doesn't go back any farther than the 6th century. Uh, probably originates with the Byzantine court, for obvious reasons. It would have been something the emperor would have liked to have believed and understood. He didn't like the idea that any uh, one bishop, like the Bishop of Rome, could make claims uh, to govern the universal church. Um, I mentioned before, it's still, uh, there are still a lot, not, depends on who you ask, um, but there's a lot of Orthodox theologians who take this as their starting point when they talk about you know, issues of primacy in the church and stuff like this. Uh, however, the term was never really accepted in, in Rome. They all, they've referred, by the way, they did in the past, to Rome as the Patriarch of the West. In fact, there was a big, de a big deal made of this about 10 or 15 years ago when Benedict XVI officially dropped the term. And the reason was, uh, this, we never used this before. It was almost never used to the modern period. Um, in fact, the whole idea of a patriarch it really has no, that, that term was never used. The idea never got into the West the way it did in the East. Um, Many Orthodox complained about this. The reason why, by the way, this sounded like, oh, this Pope wants to make, you know, his, he wants to sort of make, you know, everybody universally subject to him. They didn't like that idea. Um, they liked the idea of him just being a sort of local figure for the West. But uh, it had no real purchase in the Latin tradition. And finally, one other thing that um, uh, begins to separate them more and more are the Islamic conquests of the 7th century. Um, this, first of all, cuts off the seas of Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Antioch from Roman Constantinople. They're under the authority of, uh, of the uh, various uh, Islamic uh, kingdoms that are going uh, therefore thereafter until the, until the modern period. Um, and it leaves Roman Constantinople to develop without much reference to them, to be honest, in many ways. 
Um, the conquest furthermore made travel and communication between east and west much more difficult. They could still do it, but it's it's a problem, obviously, to a lot of to a large degree. Also, one thing to note as well, up until the early seventh century, um, the language of administration, both the east and the west, language of administration of the Byzantine Empire, the Greek-speaking empire, was still Latin. Uh, what changed this was um, um, an emperor named Heraclius uh, in six, the 620s, 629, I think, uh, was you know, involved in a war with Persia, death struggle with the Persian Empire. And in order to rally the Eastern Empire against the Persians, changed the language administration of the Eastern Empire to Greek. And so it becomes an officially Greek-speaking entity in the way it wasn't before. So again, these, again, no big breaks, just this slow growing away from each other in what we would consider cultural terms. Here. Uh, here I just want to show you a map. Um, uh, if you listen to the recording, you can't see this, but it's a map of uh, essentially um, the old divisions of the old Roman Empire. But if you can see this, I'll stand up here, show you here. You have the uh, realms of the great patriarchs of the ancient world over here Rome, the, the west, Constantinople here, uh, modern day Turkey basically, Balkans, uh, Antioch, modern day Syria, Lebanon, Jerusalem, modern Israel. Uh, and Alexandria in Egypt, of course. And so those would have been the four, um, or excuse me, five. Did I say four? I can't count. It's five. The five pentarchs, if you like, according to the ancient uh, um, uh, theory of the West. Derek, why did the mm -hmm. Islamic conquest create, make it more difficult to communicate between Rome and Constantinople? Because they uh, made their way, first of all, into Spain, but also um, they also uh, um, took over parts of... Um, uh, Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, so they would have, they were a threat, by the way, yeah, so, plus they would have been hard for, you know, more difficult to, you know, cross the seas, the Byzantine Navy, at certain points, right, then I say that, it didn't make it, didn't make it impossible by any stretch of imagination, we know, for example, of, just to give you one example, of English monks in the late 7th century making pilgrimages from Egypt to Jerusalem, uh, it never really stopped, even though um, uh, Muslims conquered it. So, uh, but it did it did you know, increase the tension, probably because it me meant that the Byzantines had to pay so much more attention to that than anything going on in the West, which was no interest to them at all anyway. Uh, but it's a good question. Let me have one more map here. Yeah, this is the extent of the Byzantine Empire. Um, you see the outline. That's the uh, its greatest extent under the uh, Emperor Justin the First, Justinian the First, I should say, in the sixth century. And then the empire about 1020 is this, these pink bits here. So by the time you get to 1054, what we're getting to here, it's going to be mostly uh, essentially Turkish and um, Balkan, Balkan-like, Balkanish. Uh, in the Balkans, basically, those two main areas. It will expand there. It also controls, this is very important for a long time, parts of Sicily, not Sicily then, but southern Italy. We'll come back to this because this will be a flashpoint between um, uh, Rome and Constantinople. Uh, but that's the extent of the, uh, uh, the Byzantine Empire in the period we're talking about here. As you can see, those red bits, it will shrink considerably by the time you get to the later period for reasons that will become apparent. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's see. Uh, okay. So, when we come to the, um, uh, the later centuries, a couple of things will happen to, again, begin to push east and west into uh, very different cultural and then you know, religious paths. One of these is the iconoclast controversy, um, 
which uh, this is actually uh, could be a, will be a subject probably of a lecture at some point, but suffice to say in the 8th century, um, the veneration of icons uh, in the Eastern Empire was banned uh, by certain Byzantine emperors. The reason for this, um, we're not really sure all the reasons. One of the reasons almost certainly is um, probably a response to defeats at the hands of Islamic uh, armies. The idea was, hey, you, you've been suffering defeats, you, you must have displeased God somehow. Uh, what was it? Well, it must be because we're worshipping idols, basically. And so you have this very long struggle within the Byzantine Empire over, um, um, over the veneration of images, which from the beginning, by the way, is condemned by the popes in Rome. They condemn iconoclasm out of, um, um, pretty much out of hand. They have no use for it. Um, and the emperors respond in the 720s by taking away certain jurisdictions from Rome and putting them into the hands of the Patriarch of Constantinople. I mention this because a lot of what you're going to see here, a lot of the things that are going, to, uh, are going to divide East and West are things like jurisdictional uh, disputes, right? So things like this would be important. It would be an irritant for a long time to Rome. Um, what happens, though, is in 787, um, the Second Council of Nicaea, condemns iconoclasm, um, the iconophiles, people who are the lovers of icons, triumph. The Pope will receive this, and he approves the, the workings of the council. But uh, he remains miffed about his seizure of his jurisdictions. And again, it, it leads, by the way, to a little bit of suspicion on the part of Rome, because you know, iconoclasm will actually uh, flare up again in the 9th century, and it's not until 843 it's actually put to bed. So a little bit of a rift caused by uh, the iconoclast controversy. Um, between those two places. The other major factor here is the rise of the Frankish kingdom and its relationship with the papacy. One of the things that's happened after the Islamic conquests is that increasingly the, um, the Byzantine emperors, who I mentioned before were, you know, the popes were subject to them, they could really no longer defend the papacy militarily speaking. Um, which, and they needed it. Um, because in the 6th century, people called the Lombards invaded northern Italy and became a, uh, a long time, uh, more than an irritant, a threat to the papacy. Invaded Rome several times, uh, made life pretty miserable for them. And uh, looking for protectors, since the Byzantines can no longer do this, the, uh, the popes of the 8th century lighted upon the kingdom of the Franks, which is a relatively, not really, but a couple hundred years ago, it converted to Catholicism. And um, in 752, uh, 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 Pope actually crowns the first of these Frankish kings, uh, Pepin I, and in the 780s, one of his successors, a man named Charles, uh, finally defeats the Lombards, gets rid of that long-term problem they had had, uh, and creates an empire which, again, sh literally shapes the boundaries of Western Europe to this day. I'm talking about someone you know as Charlemagne. Um, and then finally, in the year 800, Charlemagne will go to Rome, where he is actually crowned uh, as Emperor of the Romans. Uh, by Pope Stephen III, uh, proclaiming a resumed empire in the West, which the emperors, the actual emperors in Constantinople, <laughs> did not like one bit. They thought this was nonsense. They had inherited the, the authority of, of Constantine the Great. They thought this, this became, again, a really major problem for um, the Byzantines in a lot of ways. The other thing that happens with the, uh, with the Franks is that um, Charlemagne's uh, advisors, um, don't really like Byzantine theology very much. They don't particularly don't like their theology of icons. They're suspicious of it. It sounds kind of like a little bit like, well, like idolatry to them. And in fact, at a council in 794 in Frankfurt, they actually condemn the veneration of, I condemn the Council of Nicaea too. 
partly, by the way, due to a mistranslation from the Greek to the Latin, uh, which is pointed out to them by the Pope at the time, uh, and who says, uh, no, you've, you've got things wrong here. Uh, and in fact, that's the reason why um, the document produced by Charlemagne's council never really gets into the Western tradition. That having been said, Charlemagne, during Charlemagne's reign as emperor, he has a lot of influence over the Western church, and uh, Frankish influence over the Western church is very profound. It sort of um, injects a sort of legacy of indifference toward images into the Western tradition. There's never been really uh, a lot of, I mean, there are images, yes, but they've never understood them quite in the same way uh, as uh, the Byzantines have, the Eastern Rites have. In fact, uh, Benedict XVI in his uh, book on the Spirit of the Liturgy actually talks about how the West has never really fully received the Second Council of Nicaea, which is kind of an extraordinary thing to say, but it's actually probably true, partly because of the influence of um, uh, Charlemagne's advisors. Rome, by the way, was a little different. They never took quite, there was the more positive um, reception of this in Rome. They always had, because of their closeness to the Mediterranean, a little a lot more interest and care for what was going on uh, in the Eastern, um, Eastern world. Finally, this uh, sets the backdrop for probably the first real serious breach between Constantinople and uh, Rome, which is the, um, the Photian Schism of the ninth century. And uh, if you, um, um, I've talked about this before, this is another topic that could actually be in a whole lecture, probably will be at some point if I do this long enough. Um, occurred in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the 850s, 860s, uh, when an emperor uh, had the Patriarch of Constantinople deposed, a man named Ignatius. And um, in his place, he selected a very learned layman named Photios. Photios, by the way, but to do him justice, he was probably the most learned man in the world at that time. He was an exceedingly brilliant humanist and scholar. Um, but uh, Pope Nicholas I, again, invoking the right of the papacy to sort of intervene and, in, you know, uh, pretty much anywhere uh, at his jurisdiction, declared that uh, Ignatius was still the, the rightful patriarch uh, and excommunicated uh, um, uh, excommunicated Photios. In response, Photios excommunicated Nicholas. Uh, and uh, I should mention here that it wasn't just about uh, the, 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 the deposition of Ignatius. Um, there were larger things going on, because by now you had pretty clearly two different liturgies, East and West, right? They both recognized each other as being Christian, but they're very different. Not just the language, but the sound, the look of it because of icons and stuff like this. Um, but you also had the, the, the case that both the Byzantine Empire as well as um, the Western emperors were trying to uh, carry out missionary work in Eastern Europe to convert the Bulgarians, the Hungarians, the Poles, various different peoples in Eastern Europe. Uh, and the missionaries were coming into conflict in those territories. They were, you know, you have you know, missionaries coming into, the, uh, into Byzantine territory and seeing all these Greek speakers here and trying to drive them out. No, this is our territory. This is not yours. So this is behind a lot of this as well. And in fact, Photios is the one who, I'll say he's the one, but he's one of the people who's responsible for putting the filioque cause, I've already talked about that, at the center of this. Uh, because in the course of this uh, spat with Rome, he sent a letter to the bishops of the East, uh, to the patriarchs of the East, uh, invoking a number of Latin customs he deemed heretical, most of which, by the way, today we would not see as, they wouldn't even be, they were not, they're clearly not dogmatic. Stuff like, you know, um, um, the Latins fast on, what was it? Wednesdays and Fridays, they do it on the wrong day, stuff like this, stuff that's really not very important. But uh, he uh, picked out two very other, two other very sensitive items that would become major sources of uh, division. One, by the way, is celibate clergy, because you didn't have that in the eastern part of the empire. The other one, of course, was the filioque clause. 
um, which he noted, by the way, and I'll come to this in a moment. Um, 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 well, I'll come back to it, but um, uh, and he's one who first one who really in, invokes this. And I should mention, by the way, pretty people are pretty clear he invokes this probably because he knew it was a weak point um, in the Greek eyes of, uh, of Latin theology. Um, Photios was trying to sort of keep himself um, uh, in uh, in office, which didn't work because, as it turns out, the emperor was assassinated, and his successor, Michael the Seventh, uh, needing support. Uh, appeased the Pope by deposing Photius and reinstating Ignatius, who had been deposed back in the 860s. Um, the schism only ended in 890 when Ignatius finally died, and then uh, Photius was uh, canonically elected, uh, re-elected, however you want to put it, uh, as patriarch, and the, uh, Nicholas's successor uh, acknowledged his, uh, his uh, election. Now, when we talk about the Filioque, to give you a couple of things uh, why this is going to become such a big deal, there's two reasons. Um, in the Greek eyes. One is that this uh, filioque clause had been introduced into the, the creed, uh, the uh, universal creed, in the 6th century by the Spanish church. It was a council in the late 6th century in which uh, Spanish bishops inserted it into the creed in order to um, basically deny uh, Arian doctrines. Arianism was still a problem in the 6th century Spain. There were people denying the, the full divinity of Christ. This was, to their mind, as far as we can understand, we don't really know the exact reason they did this, other than that they wanted to, not, to, to basically sort of condemn Arian doctrines. Um, and um, Greeks objected to this uh, because a local council, in their mind, should not could not, did not have the authority to change a universal ecumenical creed. So they thought it was illegitimate for those reasons. The second reason is is that um, this idea that the, the father, again, I'm not going to get into this in too much detail, this is almost over my head as it is, but the idea that the father, uh, the spirit proceeds from the father and the son, again, sounded like there were two principal causes at work. In other words, it sounded like this is like two, two gods or something. Um, and so they began to see, and Photios was the first one, and by the way, he was the first one to write about it. There'd already been concerns. It wasn't like this came out of the blue, so he didn't make it up. This was a concern they had had before, but it had never been picked out as specifically a big dividing point before. However, once Photios died, the thing basically went away. Uh, the issue was essentially dropped. It was mainly raised in the mix of that sort of jurisdictional dispute. And in fact, one thing to note here is that the popes, um, the bishops of Rome, I should say, never really been in, that enthusiastic about the Filioque Clause. They allowed it. It was fine. They never used it in their own liturgies until 1014. So it's at an only very late date that it gets embraced by the Bishop of Rome anyway. So it still rankles, but it doesn't become one of the dividing lines until uh, later on. Okay, so how does this schism come about? We're still we're going through centuries here, and we haven't got to this point where people are getting in, hey, schism, schism, not yet. So it's really between uh, the 10th and 11th century that this becomes to the fore. Uh, that's why I didn't title the lecture. So one thing to note about East and West. Um, is that in the 10th and 11th centuries, both the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, but also the West, the West more generally speaking, but also the Western Empire uh, that was founded by Charlemagne, go through a period of uh, resurgence, um, flourishing. Uh, in the West in the 960s, uh, uh, a dynasty comes to the throne of uh, Charlemagne's throne. Um, it's called the Ottonian, because you have three emperors, Otto the first, Otto the second, Otto the third. 
again, these ancient peoples have very very little imagination naming their sons, but they're all they're all <laughs> they're all auto, and they're all by the way very they're great emperors actually. Uh, in fact, they are the last dynasty because uh, Charlemagne. I should make this clear. Charlemagne's um, claim, the claim that he made, was to be the Roman Empire and to be the Christian Empire. You know, the resuscitation of it. Uh, basically, after the Ottonian dynasty dies out, basically in the 11th century, this claim gets dropped, and the, the, what comes to be called the Holy Roman Empire is essentially a German monarch, monarchy. But the Ottonians are the last ones to try to make good that universal claim. They um, they support missionary efforts in Hungary and other places, um, Poland, so on and so forth. Otto III actually marries a Byzantine princess, trying to there was some idea of maybe you know reuniting. Uh, the two lines, the Byzantines didn't go for it. They wouldn't let, let him marry a, uh, a princess who was, quote-unquote, born in the purple, someone who was uh, uh, going to inherit the throne of uh, Byzantium, but they allowed it, even though they, as we'll explain in a moment, mostly thought the Westerners were all barbarians. Um, they were okay with that. Um, and in fact, uh, the Ottonians actually granted monarchical status to the rulers of places like Hungary. Remember King Stephen of Hungary? This is the same great patron saint of Hungary given by, uh, granted by these uh, Western Holy Roman Emperors. Uh, again, they had this ideal of a universal Christian empire with them at their head, but with these other monarchs sort of, you know, underneath them. At the same time, in the same period, you also have a renaissance going on in the Eastern uh, world, sometimes called the Macedonian Renaissance. Called that because, for a long time, again, sort of like the Lombards in Italy, the uh, Empire of Bulgaria had been a sort of thorn in the side of the Byzantine emperors. But in the 9th, uh, 10th centuries, see, I guess 10th and 11th centuries, I should say, uh, it is conquered by two uh, emperors from Macedonia, hence the Macedonian uh, dynasty, Macedonian Renaissance, uh, which coincides with a cultural flowering of flowering of history, literature, um, general learning, uh, along with the resurgence of monastic life in Byzantium. Which, um, uh, um, which coincides with, uh, again, I, mean, I showed you the map there, that's sort of the greatest extent the Byzantine Empire will achieve after 1025 for the rest of its history. So this is the sort of last hurrah of glory before it's also slow and inevitable decline. At the same time in the West, you also have two very, very important reform movements beginning in earnest in the 10th and 11th centuries. Um, there was a monastic um, reform going on. Uh, a revival of Benedictine monasticism. Remember St. Benedict of Nicaea. Um, you will have effectively monasteries being refounded or being reformed along the lines of his rule uh, via the interpretation of a ninth, uh, excuse me, a ninth century reformer, also named Benedict, um, which put great emphasis on liturgy, uh, especially on intercessory prayer. Uh, the great monastics of houses of Europe saw themselves as interceding for you know their donors and stuff like this. Um, and, um, and so you have the, the, uh, the flourishing of these monasteries, the growth of these monasteries, as well as the monasteries associated with the monastery of Cluny in France. And I'll mention this because this goes along with a reform that will happen um, later in the 10th and 11th centuries, excuse me, 11th century, uh, which involves the papacy. Um, and um, what's important about this reform is that these Cluniac houses wanted to be independent of local nobles who would which this next week will be all about this, uh, tended to control, exercise a lot of control of the local church or kings or local bishops. And they did this by subjecting themselves to Rome directly and sort of bypassing their jurisdiction. Why is this important? Um, because those series of houses will put a lot of emphasis on, well, first of all, the abbots of Cluny, by the way, will become 
um, how do I put this? They'll become part of a web of different monasteries. For the first, this is actually unique to the West. The idea that a monastery will found daughter houses and all that sort of thing connected to the abbot of the one monastery begins at Cluny. Why do I mention this? Because that's kind of be kind of going to kind of become sort of a model for a reformed papacy in the 10th and uh, 11th and 12th centuries, which is going to assert its universal claim over the church in ways that are, it's done before, but never quite this way. Uh, and in fact, these papal reformers are going to exist very strongly, very, 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 very strongly on the universal authority of the Bishop of Rome. Uh, in fact, some of them are involved in uh, the events of 1054. But there are still lots of ten there are lots of tensions between East and West, even though, again, things are, for the most part, after the Photian Schism, eh, back and forth. For the most part, they are eh, what they had been, basically, before that. But you can kind of see things um, beginning to... Uh, not me being changed. You can see what this is. There was a um, an embassy sent from uh, the Emperor Otto II to the Holy Roman Emperor Otto II to Constantinople uh, in the 10th century in 968. Uh, Leo Prand was a bishop of the city of, city of Cremona in Italy, and he left, left, of a, left us a very interesting account of his reception there, which was not very good at all. Uh, again, the uh, uh, Byzantine emperors didn't like the idea um, very much of an, uh, a Western emperor. Uh, he got a very um, cold reception there. He was going there, by the way, to try to negotiate a marriage uh, with a uh, Byzantine princess. Uh, and they essentially demanded that the uh, Byzantine emperor, Nicophorus uh, Phocas, uh, demanded the return of Italy, basically, <laughs> to, uh, to the Byzantine Empire. That would be all of a sudden Italy, Rome, Ravenna, which he couldn't have done if he wanted anyway. But it was, uh, again, something that was on the minds of the Byzantine uh, Empire. They still thought of Italy as being part of their empire, their universal empire. I say that, by the way, they did actually talk in those terms in, uh, in Constantinople. They kind of knew it wasn't true, but they had this idea that there was this universal Christian empire out there, and they were still ahead of it. Um, and Leopran leaves a really scathing account of his reception. He really doesn't like the Byzantines at all. He thinks they're haughty and arrogant. Um, they, by the way, they think of him as being an uh, uncouth barbarian. They think of the Latins as being uncouth barbarians. They can't speak Greek. They don't know real theology, which is their theology, those sorts of things. But you know what he doesn't talk about? He doesn't talk about filioque at all. Apparently the Greeks didn't mention it. He doesn't talk about clerical celibacy. Apparently they didn't mention it. They do mock the Pope's authority. Uh, they, at one point, I, re I read this, it's really... It's kind of awful, but funny. They they say that the uh, the quote unquote stupid pope doesn't know that Constantine had given authority to the Church of Constantinople in the fourth century, stuff like this. But it doesn't sound like again like the issues we think of a front and center or front and center in the tenth century. Uh, and this is again I mention this because you do have um, this issue, continuing issue of uh, Italy and Sicily um, in the eleventh century, because you're going to have new interlopers into Italy, the Normans. I won't go into too much detail. People from northwestern, uh, descendants of the Vikings from northwestern France, uh, who will come into southern Italy in the 1050s uh, and invade. And they will actually open up an opportunity for cooperation between the West, the Pope, the Byzantine emperors, because they both don't like the Normans very much. Um, in fact, the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople, who we'll come back to, he's involved in all this, Michael Cerularius uh, uh, wrote a letter to Pope Leo IX, who was the Pope at the time in the 1050s when all this happens, suggesting an alliance between the, the Pope and uh, the Byzantines against the Normans. He never got a response as far as we're aware of. Uh, as it turns out, unfortunately, um, the Normans were a lot better fighters than both of them because they invaded Italy, 
defeated the uh, um, defeated the uh, Byzantines and took Pope Leo the Ninth prisoner in 1053. Uh, and this will lead to a big, big problem because, and this is so you by the way what we're talking about here. Again, down here. I think I get this to go. Yeah, down here. Um, Sicily, but also uh, this region here, especially Apulia, uh, Bari, Taranto, Otranto, were claimed by the Byzantine Empire. Sicily had been under uh, Arab uh, control for a long time before the Normans got to it and liberated it. Uh, but down here is where they would have a lot of their interest. Um, and it's there that the Byzantines are going to carve out a little empire for themselves. Uh, and again, you can kind of see um, the extent uh, to which uh, the Normans come in in the 1050s and it expands. It will conquer most of southern Italy and Sicily at one point. Uh, they especially will become a thorn inside of the Byzantine Empire. They actually, this is, long, this is inside baseball, they'll actually go to, to uh, well, go to Byzantium in the 11th and 12th centuries and try to take it over <laughs> several times. Uh, they got around to the Normans. So, what does this have to do with anything theological? <laughs> well, let's get to it. The Normans, when they got into southern Italy, started to impose Latin liturgical practices on Greek-speaking peoples. A lot of, it was called Magna Graecia. I have that term up there because it was an extension of the Byzantine Empire. Um, among these, by the way, are the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist, or what the Greeks called ezima or azymes. That's why it's called the azymes controversy. And um, for the more the Shermans, er, the Normans, the Shermans, the Normans shut down uh, Greek services and imposed Latin upon them, uh, and this, uh, to the least, uh, didn't go over well with, of course, the Church in Constantinople. The uh, Latin Church, by the way, thought this was just apostolic custom. It, uh, by the way, the earliest mention we have of it goes back to the eighth century. Again, everybody thought their customs went back to the apostles, so nobody really knew, in our terms, okay, exactly what they meant by that. So in retaliation for this, Constantinople closed the Latin churches in, uh, in its city, uh, which, by the way, there are plenty of Venetians, um, Genoese, a bunch of Italian merchants in that city. It was a real problem for them. That was kind of the point. Uh, at the same time, a bishop of, Bul of Bulgaria, a Byzantine bishop named Leo of Okrid, um, Okrid in Bulgaria, sent a letter to all the bishops of Italy, Italy including the Pope, uh, urging against the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist. Um, and um, this is what initially sets off Rome, because he basically condemned it as being sort of quasi-heretical. Um, this got a response whoops, from Rome itself, which was written by a man, who I'll come to in a moment, named uh, Humbert of Silva Candida, who was a cardinal of the diocese, which basically dismissed any of the Byzantine concerns as irrelevant um, and asserted the Pope's universal authority in all matters, and basically demanded they submit to his authority in all of this, in fact, for him, for Humbert, the only thing that mattered was it didn't matter what it was. As long as the Pope approved it, it must have been good and right and apostolic. The most astonishing thing that Humbert will do in this, and eventually he will actually take this to Constantinople, you'll see, uh, is that he accused the Greeks of deleting the filioque clause from the creed. That is, he didn't know what he was talking about and thought they had gotten rid of what was originally there, which was not. Um, and he asserted, by the way, that he knew this was the case. Why? Because he had been in the Pope's presence and he had said that the, uh, the Filioque was orthodox. That's how, therefore, I knew why it was orthodox, essentially. Um, I should mention that reform <laughs> movement I'm going to talk about next week. Cardinal Humbert was one of the major players in that reform movement. Uh, and, uh, so he's definitely part of it. He's also, by the way, one of the most abrasive people I've ever encountered <laughs> in studying any sort of branch of history. He really couldn't do anything uh, without being abrasive. He was a really, really that kind of person. 
But he was also the friend of Pope Leo IX. Um, by the way, this is just to show, um, you know, we're talking about the areas where we were talking about um, evangelizing in the 10th century, 10th, 11th century. Um, Hungary, Eastern Slavic principalities, where those border areas, which are still a sore point even in the 11th century, just to give you an idea of what those things are. Uh, Leo sends an embassy um, to Constantinople, led by Cardinal Humbert, or Humbert, I don't know how you pronounce that. Um, and um, he was sent there um, to deliver a letter from Pope Leo to Michael Serularius, the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople. And um, Serularius is an interesting figure as well. He was someone who had been a layman, uh, like Photios, before he was elected Patriarch. And by all accounts, he basically saw this as a sort of outlet for his disappointment, disappointed um, sort of secular ambitions. He was not much of a theologian. He didn't really care much about theology. He was more interested in the sort of dignity of his office and stuff like this. Um, and in fact, when the papal legation goes to meet him in 1054, in April of 1054, people, hopefully the IX has already died. And what this means, by the way, and uh, so Sarah Lyris will only realize this much later on, is that their commission is actually defunct. They have no authority. But they go there anyway, they don't know this until later on. They deliver uh, the letter um, uh, to uh, uh, Serialarius, but he found that the seal was broken on it, and he became paranoid. He thought the letter had been tampered with. There was a Byzantine general resident in Italy whom the uh, legates had conferred with before he left for Constantinople, who was uh, Greek and Byzantine, but he was sympathetic to the Latins, and this Michael Serialarius thought this guy was somehow conspiring against him, trying to sort of ruin his reputation in the eyes of the emperor or something like this. Uh, to which he was, of course, very sensitive. He'd been raised up by the emperor. On the other hand, Humbert uh, treated the patriarch with undisguised contempt. Uh, no attempt was made to even notify uh, the patriarch of Constantinople of their arrival until they got there. When they got there, they basically dismissed any sort of decorum. They didn't make any bows, they didn't do anything like this. They just went in there and shoved the letter basically into his hand. And, um, and in fact, it was Humbert who insisted on having a big argument about, well, about, about these sorts of things over the Eucharist almost immediately. Uh, Humbert was scandalized by the way the Greeks would treat um, the unconsumed bread in Greek liturgies. If you know what they did at the time, they would actually either bury it or throw it down a well. Uh, he thought this was horrible, what they were doing. Uh, in reply to this, his interlocutors um, claimed that a Eucharist that was celebrated with unleavened bread was not a Christian rite at all, it was Jewish. And therefore, it was invalid. This, of course, made him uh, apoplectic. Um, and in fact, he began pushing all sorts of things against um, the uh, Greeks in reply, among them the Philoclea Clause, which again, he repeated the, a charge that they had deleted it from the liturgy, which had, again, had never been there before. Um, this went on for a couple of months, until eventually, on July 16th, um, Humbert uh, and his fellow legates left a bull uh, on the altar of uh, Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, excommunicating Michael Serialarius, uh, Leo of Orchid, the Bulgarian bishop, as well as some of their followers. And that's it, by the way. Didn't execute anybody else, uh, just those particular people. Uh, and gave a laundry list of all the things that were wrong with the, uh, uh, the Church of Constantinople. The, their, um, their, their fast, everything you can think of, basically. And I, can't, I won't go through all of them in detail. They're boring. They're mostly things that happen. Not really, they're not really dogmatic teachings at all. Except for something like the Philoke, where he was obviously wrong. Um, in reply, the emperor gave Serialarius leave to anathematize the legates, which he did, 
and he publicly burnt a translation of the bull uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Constantinople. Uh, he also wrote a formal reply in which he uh, referred to the West as, quote, a land of darkness, unquote, but he never excommunicated uh, any, uh, the Pope or anyone else except for the legates, as I mentioned before. And furthermore, he blamed that Byzantine general I mentioned earlier for conspiring with Humbert against him. Against him, by the way. This was mostly what it was about Singularius <laughs> was him. Um, he did make one last effort to try to get the rest of the Byzantine world on his side. He sent letters to all the major um, um, apostolic sees in the Byzantine world, including Peter of Antioch. Peter of Antioch, of course, is under, well, had been under, um, 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 excuse me, uh, Antioch went back into Byzantine hands by this time, so it wasn't under Islamic rule. And um, he appealed to him, and he got a rebuke in reply, uh, because Peter of Antioch basically, um, I mean, he picked out, I mean, Michael Serialis picked out even worse things, like, for example, uh, Latin priests were heretics because they were clean-shaven. They didn't have beards, right? Stuff like that. We're talking like really, really. Uh, they didn't. They fasted on the wrong. I mentioned all that. I can't go through all the minutia because it's so tedious. Um, Peter replied that he was making way too much of what were minor issues. These things were mere customs. They didn't matter. Uh, in Peter's eyes, the only major issues were um, basically two things with the West. One, their refusal to accept communion uh, from married priests, and the filioque. Uh, by the way, Peter also did not accept uh, uh, papal claims to universal authority either, but it's not really a big deal to him at that point. In fact, Peter urged charity, urged him to write Sirius a letter to the Pope, sort of apologizing for the whole thing, trying to make up with him, uh, and advised him to attribute uh, Western errors, if there were any, to ignorance. Uh, he calls it their rusticity, again. Even when they're, they're you kind of get in the sense here that the, the Byzantines were a little bit arrogant, culturally speaking, uh, toward the Westerners. But he was charitable. Hey, it must be ignorance. They must have lost, for example, their translate their copy of the uh, original Nicene Creed. That's why they made this mistake, right? Um, and to not ask, he advised him not to ask the Pope for any sort of more correction than just changing the creed, basically. Um, but in the end, uh, this didn't happen, of course, uh, and nothing came of it. Uh, and in fact, this is the other thing at the time, after this episode, eh, really for the most part, most people didn't actually see themselves, Constantinople and Rome, as being in schism, which, okay, why did this 1054 get this reputation as sort of the moment when both sides sort of separated from each other? As you can kind of hear from this, the Photian schism was much more serious at the time. Well, there's a couple reasons for this. One is that I think this is the first time really, really, even more than the Photian schism, that both sides became very aware that they had some serious differences. That they, this wasn't just another, uh, you say, minor sort of fracas where people are getting ex minor excommunications. That's kind of a good way to put it, right? Ah, oh, I'll excommunicate you for 20 years, 20 years here, we'll leave it there. Uh, it revealed serious differences over things like, take the Azines, for example. Again, to the Greeks, uh, to the Byzantines, uh, again, to them, this is like, hey, this is from the Old Testament. We're Christians. We're all about the New Testament, right? This isn't a this isn't a Seder meal we're having here, right? Uh, this isn't a Jewish rite. We you know we have this thing because it uh, you know hell is it even bread if it's not even leaven, uh, for example? Again, the definition matters. By the way, if you're talking about the Eucharist, it has to be you know this this is my body and all that stuff, so it matters. Uh, secondly, I've already mentioned it. I'll mention it again. The filioque, right? Again, that is not really a, a minor issue. Uh, again, if the Western theologians had meant what they said they meant, the Greeks meant, that, that is probably heretical. By the way, we're never going to know what the hell they meant originally. <laughs> it's lost to us. 
Uh, and in fact, by the time we get to the 11th century, I don't even think they're, th they're thinking about the same things, for example. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a big issue if you don't share the same, you know, presuppositions about it. And then finally, especially this, especially because Humbert asserted this so powerfully, different ideas of, I won't use the word ecclesiology because I hate it, it's long and, and boring, but church authority. Uh, again, um, most, I would think, uh, Orthodox, if you, you'd ask them uh, today, would say that the, the church is basically a communion of local churches. That's its basic structure. Um, of course, uh, you know, Bishop of Rome said, oh, no, 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 it's very different. It has a visible head on earth. It's not merely, it's that too, by the way. It is not the you know, local churches are communing with each other, but it has a, a structure with a primate, a head for the whole thing. Um, and so that's a very different way of, of looking at it, right? Um, and so it revealed, oh, wait, we do have some really big, this isn't, maybe, it, maybe Peter Antioch was a little too, uh, was wrong, actually. Maybe it's not really about custom. Maybe there are serious differences. The other reason, by the way, that it became this one is that really this is the first time with the Azimes controversy that this, these divisions, you, you heard this before my description, it's all popes, patriarchs, emperors, it's theologians. It, for the most part, didn't involve the populations of the Eastern Empire or the Western countries. From this time forward, it does. All right? uh, it's affecting the liturgy, people's daily lives. Uh, what are you doing there? Are you doing this in this weird language? What is that, right? I mean, hell, if, you're, if you begin to suspect people, right, if they're doing it in the liturgy in a language you don't understand, how do you know they're not just injecting heresy in there without, without you doing it? I'm being suspicious, but you get the idea. Once this stuff becomes a problem, it becomes sort of spirals into that uh, as you go later on into the, uh, the Middle Ages. Okay. That may, may be one, the last section of this. I'm going to give you a very, 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 very brief Recap of, okay, if they weren't in schism in 1054, when did they come in schism? Funny you should ask. Um, there's several things that lead up to it. Um, the First Crusade, this is even an idea, by the way, they really, really didn't think they were uh, in schism in 1099 when the First Crusade happened. Because uh, the First Crusade was instigated by the Byzantine Emperor Alexios II, Alexios I, excuse me, uh, who sent a message to the Pope asking for aid. Uh, against some of the Turkish peoples who were, had uh, invaded the Middle East. Um, this is what led uh, Urban II, the uh, Pope at the time, to call for the First Crusade, which retook Jerusalem in 1099, etc., etc., um, and uh, established you know, Latin kingdoms in the Middle East, which, uh, again, it there were some tensions uh, between the Byzantines and the Crusaders. Not as much as you'd think, perhaps. Um, there were. Um, some of the Crusader states got along just fine, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, for example. Actually, again, married a Byzantine princess, one of their kings did. So they weren't necessarily always at odds. Um, but again, it brought them into contact with each other and reinforced the idea that uh, those guys are only sort of basically kind of sort of Christian. They're so different. Um, the real turning point comes with the Fourth Crusade, which again, all of these things will probably eventually be lectures at some point. Actually, I've done them on the First Crusade, but the Fourth Crusade deserves its own. Because if you don't know, in 1204, uh, Pope Innocent III uh, called for a crusade. Mostly financed by the city-state of Venice, uh, which, if you don't know, at one point had been a, a Byzantine um, colony, a protectorate, became independent in the course of the Middle Ages. And um, there wasn't a lot of love lost between the Venetians and the Constantinopolitans, uh, partly because in 1182 there had been a riot in Constantinople in which um, people of Constantinople murdered and massacred a bunch of Venetian, Genoese, Italian merchants. 
and they remembered this. So in 1204, when the Fourth Crusade got off to a bad start, when they couldn't actually pay the Crusaders, they needed money, uh, the leader of the Crusade, uh, an 85-year-old blind Venetian named Enrico Dandolo, had a great idea. We don't want to go to the Middle East. We're going to go to the Byzantine Empire. Why? Because it was, uh, at that point, had a very weak emperor. People didn't like him very much. And they actually went to Constantinople and sacked the city and took the, over the Byzantine Empire. This is probably the date you could actually date the schism <laughs> from the beginning. Because at that point, now, the general, pe general populace in what's left of the Byzantine Empire thinks that the Latins are basically brutes who came and destroyed their empire, which they kind of did. Uh, it doesn't last uh, very long, by the way. The Byzantines retake their empire in 1261. There was an attempt in 1274 at reunion. Uh, I think it's the fourth, the second Council of Lyon, I can't remember. In France, doesn't matter. You have um, issues uh, discussed there. Um, Michael VII, the emperor, uh, calls for a council. The... Um, for the Oakway is proclaimed by the emperor and some of the theologians at the council, but for the most part, it was a Latin-run thing. Uh, they weren't really allowed much of a say in it, and it was rejected almost immediately by everybody else in the visit in the uh, in Constantinople and the Orthodox world, um, and officially rejected about twenty or thirty, about ten years later. So it comes to nothing. The final nail in the coffin, however, a um, couple of things. There was one last attempt. Um, by the time you get to the 1430s, the Byzantine Empire has shrunk to basically the city of Constantinople. And in exchange for Western aid, the Emperor John VIII goes to first Ferrara, then Florence, to sign uh, an agreement uh, to work out all of these theological claims with uh, the Pope. And they actually do. They actually, uh, pretty much all the Byzantine theologians, except for one, uh, sign, a, sign the, uh, the Concord of, uh, it's called the Latin Torcelli, um, an act of union at the Council of Florence in 1439, uh, in which they agree to the Pope's authority, they agree that Florence is okay, basically. Um, and um, they go home, and immediately virtually everybody who, who signed off on it, every theologian basically repudiates it. The people in Constantinople would not accept it. Um, However, uh, the Pope at the time, Eugenius IV, kept his word. There was a, a crusade on their behalf. A bunch of French-Hungarian knights went to uh, Varna in 1444 uh, and got themselves wiped out by the Ottoman Turks uh, for their efforts. And then nine years later, Constantinople, of course, falls to the Ottoman Empire. And that's the end. And that basically ever since there has been a, a sort of a de facto schism between us and the East. So, to... Um, um, to recapitulate here, um, can there be, uh, is there going to be, uh, this has been in the air, by the way, I'll come back to this in a moment, you can ask me about it. Are we still in schism with the Orthodox? And the answer is yes, sort of. <laughs> uh, again, this goes back to Vatican II. Uh, if you don't know, of course, um, the understanding of the Church's authority, its nature, changed somewhat with the Second Vatican Council. Um, they're mentioned, actually, I can't remember which of the, the constitutions in which the Orthodox are mentioned. They're singled out because we do share so much in common with them, that in terms of ecumenical activity, it's basically the only ones we really have, quite frankly, any shot of or any, being any sort of actual reunion with anymore. Um, uh, so different are, are the, the Protestant bodies, and that, that ecumenism hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, you also had uh, the lifting of excommunication uh, and mutual anathemas by, again, it was kind of a symbolic gesture because it wasn't really a, a church-wide excommunication, as I mentioned before, in 1965 by Paul VI and I want to say it's Athenagoras IV, 
fourth was the patriarch of Palestine. I can't remember his name's Athenagoras. I don't remember the number, but uh, they did this in 1965, and there has been um, um, since the 1960s intense, intense discussions about every 10 years or so uh, between the Orthodox and the uh, and uh, Catholic Church about trying to overcome these these theological. Um, these theological problems, uh, divisions, if they can be healed. And finally, uh, just laying out here, I'm probably missing some things actually, but the stumbling blocks that we still face in all of this, um, it may not seem this way to Westerners, but to, to trust me, to, to Orthodox theologians, to people who are educated in that faith and know it, the Philadelphia is still a real big problem with them. Um, they still don't, they still, again, there are ways you can say it's Orthodox and make it line up with uh, Greek theology, but uh, it still rankles with a lot of Orthodox theologians for a lot of reasons. Again, I, I don't particularly agree with it myself, but I, I can understand where they're coming from to a certain degree. Um, but it's still there. The big elephant in the room, of course, is papal authority. Because uh, I mentioned before that idea of the Pentarchy, the idea of the church as being merely the sum total of local churches and communion with each other is really powerful. Um, there are lots of things internal to the, to the Orthodox churches um, that sort of make this a powerful sentiment. Uh, of course, John Paul II and the popes have tried to make, you know, tried to reach out to the, to the, uh, the Orthodox, you know, ask what, limit, what realistic limitations can we put on the papal authority that would make it acceptable to them. Um, at this time, there's no real agreement or consensus that they can't even do this, uh, it's even possible. One of the stumbling blocks, of course, are the Eastern Catholic churches. Um, their existence, to put it mildly, uh, anger, still angers a lot of Orthodox. They don't like that. Uh, they don't like them. They don't like them. Why? Because they they see them, um, and again, if you don't know the, the status of most of the Eastern Orthodox churches, they all, most of them signed, there's about 26 or so um, um, Eastern churches that are in communion with Rome. They signed different agreements over a period of several centuries after um, uh, 1453. And so this looks like, again, to us, this just means, oh, you're coming back into you know, communion with the, the Holy Father, this is great. looks like to the Orthodox that he's picking them up one by one. Um, they're suspicious of any sort of, um, any sort of move like that, because it looks like to them that the Bishop of Rome just sort of absorbing everything into the uh, Latin church. They're very suspicious of that for a lot of reasons. Um, and then finally, just internal divisions within both the Catholic Church because we have them, uh, and internal divisions within the Orthodox world. If you don't know, uh, recently there has been a schism uh, within the Orthodox world between the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Patriarch of Moscow, the Russian church, uh, over, again, jurisdictional problems in the Ukraine. I won't go into it. You can read about it in your own time. And they don't like each other very much. Um, we, of course, in the, uh, in the Latin church are going through lots of problems at the moment, uh, too many to name. So we both have a lot of internal divisions that we keep us apart. Uh, and the last thing I'll mention, because I've sort of uh, hinted at it already, you may have heard a couple of days ago, the uh, Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople, uh, Patriarch Bartholomew, uh, gave a talk, a private talk, to the monks of the monastery of Mount Athos in Greece, which is a very, very powerful, influential uh, monastery within the Orthodox world, basically telling them that he thought that reunion with the Catholic Church was inevitable, that there's no real dogmatic differences, that... Um, that all of the differences are basically due to historical events that are merely um, um, accidental. There's nothing separating us. And I have to say that the patriarch is a very nice man. He's a good man in a lot of ways. Uh, I think he's being rather woefully naive, I have to say. Um, there are still, and I say this, by the way, with respect to the Orthodox. Their concerns are not merely 
I think it's kind of insulting to say to them, hey, hey, you don't know what theology is. You're just, it's just your dumb culture. You're a barbarian. It's really not very, uh, again, on the actual, on the actual facts on the ground, I disagree with them, obviously. I, 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 by the way, again, I've said this before. I, hear, I was an atheist before I became a Catholic. I did consider Orthodox claims. I still can't accept them. But I, I really respect them a lot. I really do. And I would, I would not demean them by saying all your concerns are cultural. Uh, it, it just seems kind of uh, chauvinist to me. Um, but I, I put it this way, I don't think, I, I'm, I'm fairly, fairly confident in saying even the younger people in this room will never live to see that reunion happen. It's nowhere close, unfortunately. Um, but we should keep praying for it because we do share much, so much in common. And uh, hopefully whatever we can learn, hopefully you learn something from this that will hopefully uh, help you um, um, understand that better. Maybe make us a little more charitable toward our, uh, to the, uh, those who are not uh, in communion with us. Uh, and so that is it. That is the lecture. Um, thank you guys for uh, attending and uh, yeah so 